Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. I want you to get ready today for a powerful story about belonging and a challenge to open your soul to others' pain. I do want to let you know that this episode discusses a sensitive subject, suicidality, and may be a trigger for some of you. If you or someone close is struggling with suicidal thoughts, talking helps. Call the Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or text HOME to 741-741. Christopher Thomas Veal is a fourth-year medical student at the Larner College of Medicine. He is originally from Detroit, Michigan, and earned his Bachelor of Science in Studio Art and Biochemistry at the University of Vermont. Christopher has served on the Vermont Governor's Council for Child and Family Prevention Programs and has led several activist groups while in medical school. He has also published essays centered on mental health advocacy and social justice in the Annals of Internal Medicine and Academic Medicine. Currently, he is directing a film series centered on medical student mental health called The Larner Stories Project. Please listen with an open heart and an open mind. Hey, Christopher, thank you so much for your time today. I so appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. Honestly, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Oh, really, the, the privilege is mine. So you and I met at the American Academy of Pediatrics Suicide Prevention Summit, and you were one of the keynote speakers. I mean, you were you were the, the headliner. Incredibly and, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it was it was uh, it was so amazing. And it was a really great way for them to start it with. And really, you shared your story, which is incredibly powerful. And I wondered if we could open with you sharing your story. Yeah, of course. Well, um, I hope that uh, me sharing my story now won't be nearly as long-winded as it was during the conference. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I, I the story I shared during the conference was really my journey to medical school. Um, and certainly there is a lot of epilogue or at least prelogue to the, to the story from my childhood and upbringing. But, you know, I focus on medical school because uh, it really changed my life in uh, more ways than I would expect. When I first came into med school, it was the uh, fall of 2016. And um, it was about, oh man, I would say six months after my best friend had died by suicide. Um, and about five months after my, my, at least half my family disowned me, um, I had a really big riff with my father uh, after I came out of the closet. Um, and so that was a really big riff um, that, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was tough to kind of deal with. And, I, and, and there was a lot of uh, feeling of abandonment um, just in general. But um, on top of that, there was this kind of seven year low grade depression that I didn't really address at all um, because I really didn't know how to. I guess I'll get into this later, but you know, I, I had a, an upbringing of you know a, a typical Black American family, um, Christian American family, where you know, oftentimes if someone was going through something, they would just say, "Hey, pray about it; it'll go away." 
And I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic schools my entire life and I prayed every day about it and it didn't go away. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was something I was dealing with. Um, but I say all this just to kind of start and set the, set the, the mood as to when I started med school, I, I, was, I was not at my best. Um, there was a lot going on uh, that really um, hindered me from, in my opinion, being the best medical student I could have been. On top of that, you know, I, I went to University of Vermont and there was not a lot of diversity here at all. I mean, really it's at, at baseline. When I came here as an undergraduate, because I also went here for undergraduate too, um, I was one of two people, one of two black people um, in my class of 3000 people that had graduated pre-med. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I knew that the diversity issue was a problem um, at UVM, but I didn't realize how much it would affect me uh, until uh, I was in the thick of, of my first year. Um, during my first semester, uh, you know, there were, it would, we were known as the most diverse class uh, in the history of the college and diverse for them meant three black people and a handful of Hispanics um, and throw in some Asians there, right? Uh, it wasn't like what we would typically think of as, as, as diverse. Um, but for, you know, the University of Vermont, there was a step in the right direction. Um, and, you know, I appreciated the, 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 the people that were there. Um, you know, if anything, it helped me feel less alone. But by my second semester, it became very obvious that a large chunk of those people of color were no longer here. Um, they had left or were asked to leave or what have you. The friends that I did have that, that were close to me who were in that group that left told me this really chilling moment that they had prior to leaving where they had a meeting with one of the deans and that dean asked, um, are you sure you want to be a doctor? And that kind of led to um, you know, a variety of different reactions from the students that wound up leaving. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the, the reaction that was ubiquitous between them all was this you know, feeling of defeat and um, you know, severe imposter syndrome where you know, the, 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 there was a mistake made that you know, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. And, and when a dean tells you that, when a dean asks you, are you sure, are you really sure you wanna be a doctor? It sticks with you. And so when I came back that following semester, um, and, and I must also note that this, the depression had really grown deeper and deeper and deeper um, because medical school tends to exacerbate every small thing that may have been a little bit of an annoyance at first, but now has become a very big one, um, you know, that phrase, are you sure you want to become a doctor, was just, re just repeating in my brain. That, along with the phrase my mom would always tell me as a kid, failure is not an option. Um, growing up, we were not rich at all. Uh, we had a very, um, I, I would, for, for, for the sake of my parents' well-being, say financially difficult upbringing that I had. Um, and, you know, the I would say the interpersonal dynamics as well in the household wasn't ideal, to say the least. And so, you know, for us growing up, failure meant being on the street. Failure meant, you know, not being able to have food, not having heat to, to, to heat the house. Um, and so when she said failure is not an option, she was primarily referring to herself because she had to go back to school and, and work very, very hard to ensure that I was able to go to school and have a future. But she also wanted me to not fall into the same traps that they did. And so I took that message very seriously and very close to heart. Um, but when you have that message of failure is not an option, and then the, are you sure you want to be a doctor? 
um, you start second guessing yourself and the anxiety becomes more and more deafening in terms of the, the noise it makes in your head. Um, there was this weird thing that started happening around this time, which was I, I started getting tinnitus out of the blue, <laughs> this ringing in my ear that um, really would come at the worst possible times, uh, times where I was most stressed. And, um, you know, it just was something I, I started noticing. By the time I got to my second year, um, the everything had kind of caught up with me. The stress, the the, the anxiety, the, the, the severe depression, which again, I had not <laughs> gotten treated at all. And, you know, I thought that I would be, that, you know, I was really just getting by that that would be enough. But it wasn't because by the time I got to my, you know, first class my second year, I wound up failing it by a point. And, um, you know, having to be put in front of the advancement committee of the school. Um, now this was, I, during, during the presentation, I, I kind of put a picture of a congressional hearing there because that's how it felt like, um, you know, this, this panel of, of doctors, um, you know, for some of, some of whom were my, were, my, were my professors, some of whom were people I just saw in clinic. And, you know, I am on this one side by myself, uh, you know, not being represented by anybody, having to represent myself and plead my case for them to give me an art chance keeping in mind that several people ahead of me have done, have had to do the same thing and, and didn't come back. So I got through that, that, that phase, but when I, when I got out of that meeting and I sat in my car in the parking lot of, of, of the school, the first thought of, 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 of dying, of killing myself came because I had felt so defeated. And at that point I had really just um, come to a point of not, understanding what my role was in life if i if i if i wasn't going to be able to finish medical school if, if they if, if i'm not making the cut right now and they've already gotten rid of most of us already and people of color what am i going to do when it ha when it eventually happens to me you know i it was that failure is not an option that um the, the fear of the rest of my family is only me because of the of the, of the pride um, they had felt from me being in medical school. Um, and in my mind, even though it wasn't true, in my mind, I felt like my the, lo my the love I got from my family was dependent upon my success in medical school, right? Um, even if that wasn't true, that was what, I, that was, that was what was going on and, and depressed Chris's head, right? So, you know, the thought was real. And, you know, I, I shook my head and, you know, the, the, the ringing in my ear stopped and I was able to breathe. I drove myself home that day, hoping and, and, and praying that that thought wouldn't come back. But, you know, I, eventually, you know, the, the plan that was made was I would have to retake the exam after winter break and basically sacrifice my winter break to prepare for this exam on top of the uh, upcoming step one that was going to be, I'd have to take a few months after that. So winter break comes along and I, you know, Stay in Vermont. I don't see my family, um, and I spend my I spend Christmas in the library, which is depressing in and of itself. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just like you know not the ideal place to be on Christmas Day, um, and also happens to be my favorite holiday, so it's just a real bummer. But um, you know, I I did what I needed to do, and I thought that, and I was afraid of asking for help because I was I, I again a lot of a lot of my behavior kind of stems back to. To childhood, right? Where um, asking for help was something that my mother really did not want me to have to do. 
Um, she, and really I would say my mom, my grandmother, my aunt, um, who were all very independent women who I feel raised me um, for the most part. Um, asking for help was a sign of weakness. Um, and, you know, asking for a loan or, or not being able to get something for yourself was something that was really not, um, not encouraged. So I did not ask for help. And I thought that if I just followed what, you know, people told me with, without realizing that not, not everyone's way of studying is, a, is the correct one for me. But, um, you know, there's this kind of, uh, at least when I was studying for step one, there was this, uh, um, tradition of people just like reading through this long book called um, First Aid for USMLE, um, which is like 300 pages long, just dry factual text. Um, and then doing questions that I was just not doing well on at all. So I thought that that way of doing the studying was the right way. It was not the right way for me. <laughs> it was a really bad way for me. But again, this is a person who didn't want to ask for help because he was ashamed and he, has, he had imposter syndrome, right? So I come back to school after winter break. And I retake the exam uh, that I had failed originally in the fall. And wouldn't you know, I failed it again. <laughs> and you know, this is a this should be an easy exam. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like it's a horribly hard class. It's a it's an orthopedics class, um, musculoskeletal system class. Um, the class itself was only two weeks long. There was only one exam, so you know. In theory, I should have just should have been an uh, ace in the hole, but there was that depression that was getting in the way of everything. It was this mental fog, right? And when I found out that you know I had failed it, my brain just stopped working; it just stopped functioning. And so, you know, when I when, when they eventually told me that I had failed, I, I I you know there was a meeting that was scheduled with the dean or the dean of of, of, of students at the time, and me, just a few hours or so after I had been notified of the failure. And, you know, when I got to this, to the meeting, I was already just besides myself and, and, and a nervous wreck, doing everything I can to just not cry. And I remember my hands shaking like no other, really. So I, I, I was holding my hands as, as tight as I could, but then the ringing started to come back in my ear. And I sat there in front of this dean and with my breath just you know, trying to keep my composure as, as well as possible. And then those words came out, are you sure you want to become a doctor? And the moment that happened, the ringing went away and I just couldn't breathe. It was like this breathless moment where everything just stopped. And I could see that she was still talking, but I heard nothing. All I could hear were those words echoing in my mind, failure is not an option. So, you know, I let her finish and what she said after, I have no idea, but I, I, I left the office as fast as I could, went into the stairwell and I just broke down and cried. And, you know, I had this gut-wrenching pain that I had really not experienced before. Um, I had a, a similar feeling after that advancement committee meeting, but that gut-wrenching pain, that deafening ringing sound, just, I just couldn't take it. Um, and so I thought the only way out of this is death. I, I, that's, I, there's no way I can possibly redeem myself from this point in a way that will maintain my integrity. This was, again, my thinking at the time. And so I got my things together. I left the building. 
I, I go outside and it is a blizzard like no other. I mean, it's the date was was January third, I believe, um, of twenty eighteen, and so it was it was a massive blizzard in Vermont. And you know, as I'm walking, I'm realizing that if I if I drive my car into the the busiest intersection of town, which happened to be right next to my school, um, and hit the the the, the lamp post, the, the the traffic light pole. My family would assume that it was an accident because it was that roads were slippery, and that my death was not a suicide, but in fact just an accident, and that my mom would be able to get over that. You know, I, I mentioned my mom a lot because she I care a lot about her, right? You know, that was my justification. And so I'm walking to my car. And I'm committing to this plan. I clear the snow off my car. I get in my car and heat it up. And I'm sitting there watching the snow collect on my windshield. And something tells me to call the mother of my late friend. Her name is Carla. And she and I had gotten very close uh, after uh, her son passed away. Her son was my best friend. Um, and so, you know, at the time I had had some really... Not great family issues, as I mentioned before. Um, and, you know, I kind of felt like I needed, uh, I guess, some parents who understood medicine and understood the, the kind of life that I was entering because my parents didn't understand. And there was nothing wrong with my the lack of understanding of, of my world. Um, you know, my, 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 my family only knows the world that they have encountered, that they've been involved with. But when I met Carla and Jim, um, both of whom were doctors, uh, and both of them whom were, on, were going through a similar pain, I think probably a worse pain than I was with the loss of their son, um, you know, we finally we kind of found each other and we kind of latched onto each other both as, as, as supports and, and also, you know, as, as, as our strengths. Um, I decided to call her because I knew that she would listen to me. Um, and it wasn't the fact that my parents or my mother or my or my family wouldn't listen to me. It was a matter of them not I, me not feeling they would say the right thing, which I was correct about because when I eventually did call them, they said what I thought was said, which was not did I need to hear at the time. When I called Carla, you know, I, I I said, you know, hey Carla, how's it going? And you know, she immediately caught on that I wasn't I didn't sound the way I normally sound. And she said, Chris was wrong. I'm like. I'm fine. I'm doing good. And just, I just want to call you, see how you're doing. And she's like, no, no, something's going on. We went back and forth for, for a bit and it eventually came out, you know, that I, all the stuff that had happened, you know, starting, starting from school to that point and, and the feeling of, of failure and, and just absolute despair and, and feeling like I just, do not belong not only here and in the school but you know here in general and you know while i did not tell her what i was planning on doing you know after the end of the phone conversation uh she refused to get up the phone until i got home and so by her doing that she saved my life she, she really did um and you know I, i'll never forget you know at the end of the conversation she she said, you know, Chris, just get through this last course you're in, which was only a few more weeks left, and, and just come to San Diego. Come come out to California, where, where she lives. Um, don't worry about school. We will take care of this. I just, You just need some support right now. You just need some love. And 
I did. You know, I, I really, that was, that was what I needed. Um, I also needed help. You know, I, I didn't, I needed a therapist. I needed something to get me back to a, a point where I could come back to Vermont because I didn't want to come back to Vermont. I was, my plan was to leave and not come back um, to the state of Vermont um, because I was so ashamed. And, you know, eventually I, I got to a point um, while in California um, that I, I started be, being able to come, kind of come back. I, I got involved with kind of behavioral therapy and it made a huge difference for me. The biggest thing that I learned was a few things. One of the ones that kind of still stays with me is learning how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and also not being afraid of failure. You know, that failure is indeed an option and that it can be used as a point of growth. There's a quote that I learned not too long ago from Michael Jordan. And um, he has this quote where he says, I have failed again and again and again, but it is because of that failure that I succeed. Uh, I might be paraphrasing it a bit, but that's basically, that's just a bit. And when I started looking at failure as an opportunity instead of liability, that's when things started to turn around. Now, granted, I still was afraid of asking for help. <laughs> and so while I am, you know, as I started to study for, you know, step one again um, in California, um, I wasn't studying it in the proper way. And so when I eventually took it later on uh, that summer, I failed it by quite a bit. <laughs> it was not a, it was not like my class where I failed it by a point. This was uh, a couple points. I knew I wasn't ready for that exam when I took it. But part of me did not want to give my school the satisfaction of knowing that I couldn't do it. And the other part of me stopped fearing failure as much as I did. And basically I made a I made a, a deal with myself. And I said, if you if if Chris, if you pass, great, you go forward, you continue, you continue on this track. But if you fail, you do things different, more or less do an autopsy of, of what you did wrong. You learn from your mistakes, you learn from that failure, and you go on in a different way, in a different strategy, with a different environment to take it again. And I had only gotten that from therapy. <laughs> um, and so when I found out that I failed it, you know, a month or so later when I was doing my, my famous rotation, you know, I was okay with it. You know, I, I felt like, you know, this is something I can, I can, I can do. I can deal with this. This is not a huge problem. And I remember, you know, my, my godmother, Carla, who I, who I started calling my godmother, uh, my best friend's mom, uh, I felt like that day she helped me. She was literally sent by God. That was kind of my, my transition to that. Um, you know, she was so uh, worried about me. She was like, Chris, are you going to be okay? Like, you're in Vermont right now. Like, you need to come back to California. I'm like, no, 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 I'm okay. You know, I think that what I learned out in California is just as applicable here as it was out there. So I did, I changed everything. I mean, I changed, I changed, I actually asked for help. I got a very great tutor who I am still very close friends with to this day. Um, I got a therapist who, again, phenomenal therapist. And I got that support system that I needed. Um, and it worked. You know, when I, when I eventually took the exam that November, I passed it. Um, and this entire weight just came off of me. You know, I mentioned this in my video, uh, Lara's Stories Project, um, that I felt like this weight came off me. And it wasn't the exam that did that. It was this person that I was that was dragging me down, that was preventing me from reaching the potential 
that I'd had all along. Um, and so really that was a, was, it was a, was a big breaking point for me. Um, and, you know, I, I got into my clinical rotations. I started doing really well. I mean, my strengths were and forever will be in clinic. <laughs> I am not great with just standardized testing and paperwork and books. I, I just, that's just not me. Um, but I love patients. I love talking. You know, one of the reasons why I decided to, to do, you know, family medicine is because I like that outpatient experience, um, that interconnection with a person and, and really being part of their family as, as, a, as a result. Once we got into 2020 and as I got into my fourth year, the world obviously came to a collapse uh, with, with the pandemic. And as you know, as, as I'm sure is no surprise to your audience, you know, America had been hit even, you know, even harder. Um, now I am, if it hasn't been clear already, I am a black gay man from Detroit. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, there was a lot of intersectionality there. Um, and, you know, the, the, the black man from Detroit part is important here because not only was the Midwest hit hardest early on during the pandemic, but so were black people um, and people of color in general. Um, and so as I am at home quarantined with my parents outside of Chicago, my family on both sides of my, my family uh, are dying um, or getting horribly sick um, from, from the pandemic. Uh, and when they are dying, the rest of the family is calling me because I'm the only person medically affiliated in my family asking me why we are dying. Um, which is a loaded question. It's a very, very loaded question because not only was it, you know, COVID that was killing us, there was also the police that were killing us. It was, it was the, you know, preventable diseases that we have been having untreated for a variety of reasons from mistrust to being in an underserved area. There are so many disparities that we have as black people and having to explain that again and again and again it became taxing, you know, really incredibly taxing. And so I started realizing at that point that my role as a medical student, but very quickly becoming a doctor um, was not just one for my patients. It was one for my family as well. And it was one for my community. And so as five people, my family died of this virus and a cousin of mine had died in a very high profile police shooting out in Pennsylvania. It really became this just drag, and I had to really try to under, try to recognize um, what role I was going to have going forward. The straw that broke the camel's back came in July of last year, of, of 2020, and um, it was after the death of a friend of mine um, who was in a class behind me, um, also a black uh, male medical student, and. That just took me, it took me by, it, just, it took me over. It, it was a death by suicide if I, if I didn't say that earlier. Um, and knowing where I was in my stage of education, um, when I wanted, when I had plans of killing myself, uh, was around the same moment that he was in, in his kind of phase of his education. Now, I don't know what led up to him doing what he did. I can't, I can't speculate to that, or I can't, I, I can't know what it was. But I do know that I personally knew how bad things could get 
how bad things can be, how being a person of color in medical school has its own burden, having depression on top of that, having family pressure and you know, enter pressure from oneself, pressure from the the the, the school itself. It, it weighs on you. It's it's taxing. And you know, I I I titled this article I wrote recently, "We Burn Out, We Break, We Die," because it feels like that, right? I mean, there's this point where there is just not enough space in one's soul to take all of this in. And we eventually burn out. We 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 break from the pressure, and we just and we die. Whether it's by suicide, whether it's by an accident that could have been prevented, these are things that are negatively impacting our profession. And it's what's sad is that it's not talked about, you know. And I always go through this too, you know. When when that happened, I hadn't talked about me feeling step one. I hadn't talked about you know wanting to kill myself. This was these were topics that I kept to myself. But at that point, I realized the the consequence of not talking about it was death friends of mine dropping out of med school that was the result of me not talking that was how i saw it um and so at that point i it was a really big transition point for me um i really stopped caring about what other people thought of me now granted you know, this was a very interesting time period to do it because I'm applying to residency. And so, you know, this is kind of time where you want people to think you're good. Um, but I was fed up. And I realized that at any moment now, I could die, whether it's by the police, whether it's by COVID, whether it's by, you know, an accident or by myself. I have so many targets on my back at all times that I cannot just live my life knowing that if I die, I would have contributed nothing to solving the problem. So that is when I started changing things dramatically. Um, I decided to start this project, which um, we, we talked about earlier, but I'm sure we're going to get further into now, um, call it the Larner Stories Project. And it is very much um, inspired by and similar to the uh, It Gets Better project um, uh, that was made famous by you know um, prominent LGBTQ figures. Um, to basically uh, let folks who are struggling with their identities to realize that it gets better um, and that their pain they're going right now is only temporary. I had an idea of making that for medical students um, because I real I because I knew just from my own experience and from the experience of my friends around me how much we feel like we're alone, but in reality, 80%, 75% of us are all going through the same thing. We're just very good at hiding it. Um, and if, if anything, we've been read to hide it because medical school has, medicine in general, has a guise and tradition of appearing perfect. You know, um, it's almost like it's ingrained in that professionalism, um, you know, word. When it comes to that, that term when it's been used in medical school, it's like, you know, professionalism means you know, putting your patient first and not thinking about yourself and not acknowledging when things are difficult and, and always feeling like you're the problem and, and, and you know, never questioning authority. Like this is, these are the things that create that burnout and that toxic environment. And that's the thing that I hated the most about it. And that's what led me to doing what I wanted to do. But, you know, I, I have a very strong feeling that also contributed to my friends. Um, and so, you know, my, 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 my plan for this series was to get 
medical students, current or former, you know, for, for current doctors or, um, you know, what have you, and to tell their stories of their unique challenge. Now, I, I, I believe that every person has their own story, but, you know, some people have, have more difficulty than others, you know? Um, and I think it's important to showcase those stories so that people, medical students specifically, when they feel like they're alone, they can see that video of that person who was now past that moment, who's doing better and say, okay, well, that's, I, if, if that person did it, I can do it. And if anything, that was what happened to me when I came back to school. I had a classmate in a class above me um, who was also a black woman. And she had gone through something very similar that I had gone through. Um, I felt steps and everything. And, you know, I knew that she was thriving, you know, at the point that, where I was trying to get back into school. And so she encouraged me to, to get my act together. Um, and I really believe I, I wouldn't have been as successful coming back into school had it not been for her. But it's because she told me her story and because I knew what she had gone through that I felt like, okay, I can do this too. You know, by telling these stories, it makes a huge difference. Dr. Moutier, Christine Moutier, who is someone I've become very close to um, as a result of kind of this project and some of my work writing, mentioned something in, in her most recent article that I already latched on to, um, which is this um, lived experience movement. Um, I had never heard that term before reading that article. Um, but she basically says in the article that um, by people telling their stories and telling their truths, that it humanizes an issue to a point where people's minds and hearts are changed. And, you know, I feel that that is such a incredibly accurate statement. Um, and, and the phrase, the lived experience movement isn't, I think is indeed happening right now. That is, a, I feel like we're in that movement. Because, you know, I think prior to the age of YouTube, when people started, you know, streaming their own stuff and, and having podcasts and stuff like that, that individual narrative wasn't really told that much. I mean, it was told through the eyes of Hollywood. It was told through the eyes of, um, you know, what people in middle America thought was appropriate. But that raw, unedited storytelling from people's experiences, I do not feel was nearly as robust as it is now. And I believe that medicine has a need for that um, movement as well. And so when I started the Lauren Stories Project and when I started writing about this topic, it was very much with that movement in mind. I understand as a black man who was raised in the 90s and 2000s that um, my role and my, my status in this country um, has never been guaranteed. Um, when I was a child, um, my mother told me a story about her grandfather who was killed by the Ku Klux Klan because he was um, attempting to learn how to read so that he could buy his own land. He was killed in the most brutal way you could possibly think of. He was hung, he was burned, and the picture of him, his body hanging from that noose was put on the front page of the paper the following day. Um, it was something they were proud of. And, you know, it's really something that I understand that it's easy for for folks to not appreciate the effects these kinds of things have on people um, when they are not those people, right? It's easy to, to, to scapegoat and to um, ostracize an entire group of people if you don't know their experience. But you learn their experiences by 
hearing their stories. And it often an individual story. It's an it's an it's a it's an individual moment where that person figures out says something that makes the viewer makes the person understand that that person isn't that much different than they are. That they are just as uh, unique and um, multifaceted as their own child or, or, or themselves. And I think that this lived experience movement really taps into that. And so that's kind of where, you, where I'm coming from. And I, and I think that's basically all I gotta say for the story, but I, um, yeah, I, that's, that's kind of all I have. <laughs> so I had this beautiful script that we went over and I just like threw it out the window because <laughs> you already did the whole thing so much better than I could. I'm just gonna like sit and listen, but there's some things that, first of all, I am, I'm just so sorry for your pain. Um, I mean, it's not just what happened to you, but your family and the generational pain. And I'm so sorry for how medicine has treated you and other students with such disregard for your humanity. And it's going to make me tear up. Brene Brown did a really, you know, she does a lot of things on shame and vulnerability. And she did a whole kind of thing about how we talk about other people and that if we dehumanize other people, it allows us to hate and hurt because we see that other thing. It's not a person anymore. And you talk so much about um, shame and this longing for belonging that telling you do you really want to be a doctor is, I don't think you belong here and that we all want to belong Mm -hmm. and that it led to this incredible hopelessness that felt like the only option for a moment. And I'm so grateful it was not forever Mm -hmm. that death was the only out for so many reasons. It wasn't just one thing. And I think a lot of times people think, oh, there was this one, you know, it was the failed test. Well, no, this is, it was thing upon thing. It was stacked Mm -hmm. up, stacked up, that there was this hopelessness, but by the grace of God or whatever you believe in, Mm -hmm. you heard that voice of Carla Mm -hmm. and there was hope. And Ann Moss Rogers, who lost her son to suicide, said that people need to understand that when there is that despair, that there is hope and that suicide doesn't have to be the answer. And we have to let people know that there are other ways out. And I think, and and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't have your lived experience that people don't really want to be dead. They don't want to give it all up. They just don't want to hurt anymore. And there's it doesn't feel there. like there's other options. Yeah. So and I, you're I, alone. And you're alone. Yeah. No, I mean, there, there's this quote that I heard recently um, that you read that that what you just said reminds me of is like, it says that anyone who has a why to live in life can get through almost any how, um, you know, and I think that's really, it speaks to what you were saying with like, you know, no one really wants to die. It's just, you know, when, when that, why to live becomes obscured and distant. Getting to that how I'm going to live is very difficult to envision because you just don't have, you know, when, when someone you think is supposed to be batting for you saying, well, I don't think you're supposed to be, I don't think you're going to be a good doctor. And all these people of color who look like you 
have also not lasted because I didn't think that it could be a doctor either. Um, when that is that, you know, when that's kind of said, um, it it really it it it, it makes it corrupts the mind. Ooh, I just feel like I gotta take a deep breath. Please, I mean, a deep breath. oh my god, I just um, who so much to unpack. I mean, you said it all. One of the things I wanted to go back to a little bit is um, about racism, about seeking mental health. And when you and I had talked before we did this recording, you said something that was like a huge aha for me about the privilege of accessing mental health may not have been something that people of color even felt like was an option for them. It's not that you don't want help. It's like that's help for somebody else. It's something that, you know, that notion itself um, changed the career that I want to have. Because um, prior to um, this past July um, and just my own metamorphosis, um, I'd only wanted to do family medicine, but now I, I want to do a combination of family medicine and psychiatry. I just wish it was pediatrics. I know. <laughs> There's still time for a Come on to the other <laughs> side. <laughs> yeah, no, it's I, I, That's I, all right. I, You're rooting for kids too. <laughs> I am. Um, but, you know, the reason why it happens is because, you know, I, I remember this time in the deep, in the depths of my depression back in um, 2017, 2018, um, when I called my grandmother, who again helped raise me, um, and at the time was in her late, oh, early 90s. I'm, I'm, I'm probably messing up her age right now. Um, but, you know, she was raised partially by her own grandmother, who was also a former slave, right? So there's a long history of of uh, just being black in America, right? Um, and so I, I called her, I'm, I, she's talking to me and I saw her, I'm like, Nana, I am so depressed right now. I can barely get out of bed and I don't know what I'm gonna do. And she very just frankly says, well, Christopher, black people don't have depression. That's not a thing we have. I mean, do you think slavery is a happy job? Do you think Jim Crow is a warm and fuzzy environment to be living in? Depression is just our baseline. That's just how we get through life. So what are you, how are you, what are you gonna do? Cause you can't let that stop you. And you know, although that was not what I needed to hear at the time. <laughs> it kind was, of a pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps right, and right. just move on, let it yeah, go. Yeah, you know, and, and, and you know, that is probably what she did for her life, right? You know, and it's, it's, it's a choice that, you know, many have had to make, um, you know, not just black, but many disenfranchised people in this country, especially the Native Americans. Um, but, you know, although that may have not been the right thing for me to hear at the time, in hindsight, when I thought about what she said and why she said it and the context in which she was saying it in, I understood why she did it. Um, and, you know, I realized that, okay, well, this talking about depression, talking about anything mentally, like any, you know, non schizophrenic, extreme mental health case um, was just not talked about because, you know, one, we didn't have the luxury of having, you know, the the the, the time and, fi and, and finances and space to just talk about our mental health problems because we were so, as a people, we were just trying to survive. You know, we, we, we were constantly, and I mean, one could argue to this day, we were constantly under the threat of being killed by something or someone as a, in mass, as a, especially when you're thinking about the, you know, post-Civil civil War, early between the Civil War and the 60s uh, of, of, of 20th century America, you know, that was a incredibly volatile time to be Black. I mean, if you even thought about, 
you know, saying the wrong thing, looking at the wrong person. I mean, you think of Emmett Till, who looked at a white woman and was killed for it at the age of like 12. You know, these are things you can't, you know, when you're living in that kind of environment, first of all, understandably everyone's depressed, <laughs> you know, and, and second of all, you know, when everyone is in that, is in that mindset and there's so few resources given to us at baseline just for living our lives, much less living our lives well, of course you're going to see, you know, the rates of death of black people being, being higher than it reminds me of our overall, you know, life, life expectancy is, is shorter than whites, whites. And that's across the board. It doesn't even matter whether you're rich or poor. That's still to this day uh, a fact that being black in America means that you have, I think, a, a one or two year um, uh, discrepancy between uh, a, a life expectancy. Uh, white people are, uh, live longer than black people. Um, for a variety of reasons. But I, I think a big part of that is the mental health toll that being Black in this country has on people. And so, you know, when we discussed this and when I thought about all the baggage that I brought with me to, to, to medical school and the way that I got help was through my white godparents who were both doctors, who both knew about what was going on. It made me realize I was a I was the lucky one. I was a, one of the one of the most extraordinarily lucky ones that there is out there because not every black person has two white godparents they can depend on for mental health advice. Matter of fact, that's that's extraordinarily extraordinary. You're, you're <laughs> it. Yeah, it's just me. It's just me. You know, I'm more than anyone can imagine. Forget being black, gay, and, and from Detroit, right? So, <laughs> and, and in medical school, so you know it really made it clear to me um, this past summer that I had a obligation to ensure that my community, people who look like me, um, are getting the care they need in a contextually cultural competent manner. And to not have that continued stigma, which is not, I don't feel, I don't view it as stigma as much as it is unawareness. Um, you know, it, it, it's, there's this quote, in the book cast by Isabel Wilkerson, where she says, those who do not know, who do not, who do not acknowledge that they're in captivity will forever be beholden to their captor. And if you are not aware of your mental health being an issue, if you're not aware that you can actually live a healthier life and that you can actually be happy, you just assume, as my grandmother said, that that is just your baseline and that you just have to get through that. And, you know, I think that for far too many people in the BIPOC population, um, the Black, Indigenous peoples, and people of color population, um, that that is all too true because of what we've had to deal with as being Americans and having like, that. Like, this is, this is just what it is, and exactly. there is no other out. You said something about um, it's, it's, a, it's accessibility, and it is a, it becomes an equity issue. Yes. And how do we open those doors? You did something else remarkable. I mean, and aside from writing this article, um, which I'll put the link in the show notes, we burn out, we break, we die. The Larner Stories Project. You did this incredible thing. You packed up. You left your medical school university for two weeks to go to Kenosha, put on your white coat and to be the white coat for Black Lives. And I mean, you walk the walk. Talk about I, that. Thank you for bringing it up. Because yeah, I mean, it, it is um, saying you walk the walk and talk. That is that's it. You know, um, and I told you July was a real was a real turning point for me um, because I had just really had enough. Um, and part of that was not not doing things 
because it was proper and because that's what was expected of me, but doing things because I wanted to, because I knew it was right. Well, Uh, you, it was like, I'm just going. Yeah. I don't know how it went over with your med school, but to me, it was like, this wasn't even a question. I'm just doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got it. I, I am called to do this. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, you know, Kenosha, that happened 10 minutes away from my family's home. Um, And so for me, it was, it was very personal. Um, I had at at a time been living with somebody who did not understand why I was so frustrated uh, when it happened. That happened, um, I I believe that shooting um, in Kenosha, Jacob Blake, um, happened during a weekday. I'm not sure. I'm I'm blanking on when it happened, but it was the week that it happened. Um, I, I had this kind of I guess coping mechanism that I've had, and I think many black people have to have this coping mechanism, where they see black death on television or on YouTube, wherever, whatever form you're seeing it on, by the police. And you know, it's at first it, it's very numbing. You know, when I first when I first saw the video of of Jacob Blake and and also of, of George Floyd, there was this kind of surrender of like, well, there, there we go, there's another black person dead. And you know, like I go back, I gotta go about my life and do what you expected of me because that's what we had to do. Whenever that happens, about three or four days later, there is always this deep in, in, internal struggle. Most of the times, it comes out as just sadness, but in extreme moments, it comes out as anger and frustration. And the person I was living with at that time did not understand why I was so angry. Um, and did not understand that when I was, you know, trying to process this and when I was trying to voice why this was so upsetting to me, it was not a reflection of that person. It was a reflection of trying to understand and cope with this nonstop Black death. And the person I was living with was, was, was just so appalled that I would just, you know, of course, this person was white, if it wasn't known by now. Um, he was appalled that I was just acting in such a manner of, of, of showing my emotion like that, as if I wasn't justified to discuss these issues and to be so upset about it. And it infuriated me that, you know, and so when I happened to have been really lucky and my, 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 my rotation for that month, the month of August uh, or September, excuse me, um, had been canceled. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna go. I just, I, uh, this is just, I just can't do this. My parents are 10 minutes away from this. They're rioting right now. You know, my parents have got, my parents at that time had gotten, um, you know, a, a flyer in the mail saying that they, that they didn't belong there. My parents were, you know, there's only two black families in, my, in that neighborhood. And, you know, there was this anti-Black Lives Matter flyer going around um, that was very intimidating and quite reminiscent of the Klan. Um, but, you know, my parents had been sent this. There was a riot happening in Kenosha. Um, I had felt, again, exhausted by the Black Death, frustrated, and just motivated to do something. And for me, and this is very similar to kind of everything I've really done, is that whenever there's a traumatic thing that happens to me or something that bad happens, I try to transition that energy into something as positive as I can, into, into whatever format it, 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 can, it can take to evoke some kind of change that that bad thing doesn't happen to someone else. In this situation, it was it was going to Kenosha um, and, 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 and walking with them. And I made a deliberate decision to wear my white coat there every day that I was protesting there because um, I wanted people to know that I am 
you know, I am a man, but I'm also a, a, a medical student. I am the people person that is taking care of you. You know, I am your colleague. I am your friend. I am your neighbor. And you wouldn't want to see your doctor being killed by the police. You wouldn't want to see your medical student being killed by the police, nor should anyone else, nor should Jacob Blake. So that was for me a moment to change the narrative from, oh, you know, black people are just rioting right now and they're just you're trying to call out car us. From that to saying, we are here, not because we are just trying to cause a, a riot. We're here because we are trying to live our lives and that our lives are multifaceted and we aren't all criminals, we aren't all poor. We are your colleagues, we are your friends. And that if you can just acknowledge that, if you can see us, you can humanize us, maybe that might change the narrative. Ooh, again, I just like drop the mic. I, I hope that you recognize that you have the mantle of leadership. Mm-hmm. I know you're young and I know you're just starting out, but step up, keep stepping up. I mean, you already have. I, I just, I, I've got nothing. I've got nothing <laughs> to add here. I'm just, I'm bowled over. You have said, I mean, you should be in a pulpit somewhere oh with a I big a preacher when I was younger. I thought, <laughs> well, you can be a preacher. It may not be in a church, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, you got a lot to say that needs to be heard. And I mean, literally when you're talking, I feel like this foot on my chest and I, you know, um, and then when you talk about there's hope and there's help, it's like, oh, I can breathe again. And <laughs> yeah. to have that experience day in, day out for a whole race of people every day, when you said I have a target on my back. You know, I I don't know what that experience is like, but, you know, hopefully I can hear it Mm -hmm. and others can hear it and you change minds, you change hearts. We think differently. You mentioned BIPOC. I had never heard that term. I had to Google it. Um, Okay. You told me it only came out in 2020, so I didn't feel so silly. It didn't but popularized in 2020. I actually read an article recently on like the the nature of that, the origin of that, of that phrase. Apparently, it was started in 2017, but it became popular in 2020. Got it. Got it. So I wasn't too far behind, but um, <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, I I got nothing else. I you just I. It's amazing what you've said. Your voice needs to be heard. Keep speaking out. Um. I wanted to just close it up with if you could go back at some point, I don't know when it was, because this has been, this isn't just med school. This came again. It's not only, you know, you said I've, I've had this depression for a long time, but it's built on top of this generational racism and not feeling like I am allowed to belong. I'm not allowed to belong and the white voices in places of authority who should know better to say, do you really want to be a doctor? I mean, shame on them. I, that breaks my heart that someone would say that. I mean, oh, so if you could go back in a moment in time and give yourself some advice, what would it be? Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess it depends on how far back I'm, I'm going to give myself advice. Um, if I, I will say when I, st- when I started medical school, I think it would probably be a good point because it was such a, a real transition for me. Um, certainly coming to Vermont from Detroit was a transition, which happened in undergrad. <laughs> um, but I think I mitigated that in the best way I could. Um, but, you know, 
I've been thinking a lot about this, believe it or not, um, because things have gone so well for me recently in my fourth year um, when I stopped caring <laughs> about what people thought and just started living my life. Um, I will say, uh, you know, on paper, um, I should not have done well during interview season um, for residency. I mean, I felt my, my step one, um, my step one score was low. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of saying it. I got 196 <laughs> on step one. Um, I'm so old. I don't even know what that means anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's passing. It's okay. So, I mean, God yeah. forbid that we judge each other by our scores on, you know, standardized tests. Cause I mean, there's this way more, uh, you know, there's a really, there's a great phrase in a very old movie about in this life, you can be oh so smart or oh so nice. And I recommend being oh so nice. Not yeah. to say that you shouldn't be smart in med school. And I mean, you got to know stuff, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But what patients want, they want this, they want the relationship, they want to yeah. know, you care, you matter. Yeah. So I interrupted your thought though on no, what you no, would right. advice you would give. Yeah, no. So you're right. I mean, this is actually this is important for the context of what I'm gonna say because, you know, I had I I know that standardized testing is not my thing. Um, and so on paper, you know, with that score, with the struggles I had in filling a course and Margie passing many others uh, during my first year, I should not be confident that I'm gonna match come. March during match day for residency. That being said, when I decided to really just stop thinking about all of the stuff going against me and start just living the life that I want to live because it was the right thing to do, that's when things changed. Um, I, as I told you before, I kind of ch I changed my focus from family medicine to, to, to combine psychiatry and family medicine. And um, having that decision midway through your fourth year is not the typical way of a fourth year med student kind of organizes their, their application. But um, I made this decision in my essay that I wrote for my programs that I applied to um, explained why. It went over, you know, the tragedy of 2020. It went, it went in, I actually talked about wanting to commit suicide in my, my, my personal statement two residencies. I said, this is where I was, this is where I was, this is where I, where I am now, and this is where I want to be. And, you know, it was written in a way that was honest, authentic, and passionate. When I came to interview day, um, I was the exact same way. I told myself at the end of, and in July, when that transition happened, I said, I am no longer going to put on any kind of mask for anybody. If anyone wants to, if you want to ask me how I'm doing, I'm going to tell them exactly how I'm doing. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. I'm not going to hide anything because I don't need to. And so when it came to my interviews and I, and, and, and they asked me, you know, questions about, you know, my motivations and everything and, 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 and how I, and the things that are going on, you know, I was honest with them. I talked about, you know, how bad my mental health was where things are now, how I've changed, how much I care about Black Lives Matter, how much I care about working specifically for my community and not having any shame about that whatsoever. You know, that honesty and authenticity really helped. And it was so much of a shift for those who were interviewing me that they were not expecting it. <laughs> you know, they weren't expecting people to be so honest, right? Because it was because it's so easy. Because everyone on every day wants to be perfect, right? Everyone wants to seem like they're the best things in sliced bread, and then they've done nothing wrong, and that everything's been perfect for them. 
I was very much not about that life. I'm like, you know what? No, life has not been perfect. Five people in my family died this year. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, or, I'm, I just was protesting in the street for, for, for people who, for a person who died 10 minutes from my parents, my family's house. Things are not okay. But you know what? Hopefully going through your residency and getting the training I need, hopefully that'll make something better. And whenever I, whenever I kind of went with that, I got the most positive reaction I could have possibly gotten. All of my thank you notes that I sent out to my interviewers, there was either a response that um, the person was so inspired or uh, excited that I had decided to be so honest and open, or that they wanted to hear more about what, what, my, what my story has been, what life has been like, and how they can help. And that's something that I don't think anyone really thinks about when they're interviewing for for residency. That I, they, you know, at least my friends that I've done, you know, are in my class, you know, they have gone more or less with the routine, you know, strategy of just trying to appear perfect, not acknowledging your faults, and just only talking about a positive. But I've learned through therapy, through my therapist, that it is those deficits, it's those faults that make you extraordinary, that make you unique, that make you someone that people want to actually engage with. And that is for me, what I would tell myself first year, first day of school back in 2016. I would tell myself, Chris, it is going to be a very hard road. It's not going to be easy by any means. It is going to be way harder than you think it is right now, but you're going to get through it. And when you get through it, you're going to have a story to tell that will make you so desirable and so needed for everyone around you that you are gonna have to do your best to just handle it all at once. And you know what? It's an honor, it's a privilege. I have been so blessed to have people in my, in my corner that have always been there who are always going to be there. And I've been really blessed to have been able to discover my voice, um, to use it in writing and to use that writing to change things. I have written two articles over, over the past year the first one was um, about race in America. And it was it specifically um, talked about my drive from Chicago to Vermont um, after the riots started happening, um, which was the first day of, of my um, of, of returning to courses back in June. Um, that piece was was written. Um, I wrote that piece as a journal entry, and I, I, I then transitioned it to, to publishing it. But I published it because I wanted people to know, specifically doctors, people in medicine to know that this movement, this Black Lives Matter movement is not just the people outside of the hospital. This is, this is, in your, this is under your nose too, as I mentioned before. I am your colleague, I am your student. You wouldn't want me being killed. You know, throughout this entire drive, I have been terrified of being killed. I have been stopped by a police on this drive. I have been refused service at a hotel for on this drive just because I was Black. So, you know, I was using it as a moment for, for radical empathy, and which, is a, which is different than regular empathy because regular empathy basically is a notion that you put yourself in someone else's shoes and you try to imagine what life is like by being in their shoes. Radical empathy is different because radical empathy does not put your lived experience into someone else's shoes. It uses that person's perspective, that person's life in their shoes, and it appreciates that story for what it is. Not as one that you would interpret through your own eyes, but one that's interpreted through their eyes. That's what that article did. I have gotten so many emails from people who have read that article to this day from around the world. Atua Gwande, one of, a writer from the New, York, the New Yorker, 
emailed me and said how much he loved the article. I mean, he wrote a review for the article. He thought it was good. It was the it was in the top ninety five percent of all articles read during its first month when it was published. It was amazing. I had no idea that my first article would be uh, you know that big of a hit. But then when I came with my second article, um, which was published on online um, in February and, and, and is in print now in, in May. Um, I, when it came out, um, the dean of my school, uh, and this article was about um, mental health and suicide prevention um, in medical students. My dean was so moved, the dean of the entire school, he was so moved by the, by the nature of the article that he decided to change the entire platform on the university and the health network, which in the University of Mind is basically the entire state, as to how they deal with mental health amongst its employees, and its, and its students. So much so that they have really taken the entire framework that I outlined in my essay and applied it to our school, which is huge. Um, that was within the first week that it was published. <laughs> so I had never imagined ever that my voice, that my voicing of my own traumas would have such an impact on the world. Um, but for me, it's just a reminder that Nothing is too big for one person. You know, you can do what you can in your own field and still make a difference. My field is medicine, you know, and that's that's the world I live in. So I write things for doctors. I write things for people in this career because I know that this is the this is an area that I know. I can only write the stories that I know. And it's been compelling enough for people to listen and to change. And that for me is what's it's worth all this pain, all this suffering. It's all worth it because it's given me this chance and platform to actually do something that matters. You make me want to be a better doctor, a better person. And you are a light. You are a light. Let your voice shine. I, I, I honestly just can't say enough about this conversation and who you are and what you're doing. I mean, you will be known everywhere because what you're saying is like so important. I mean, not just for medicine, it is so important to hear your story and your voice and you, you, I, you shine, you shine. Oh, thank so, you. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much. I am so excited to, to launch this episode, which it's just one of the best I've done not oh because God. of not because of me <laughs> not because of me because of you oh and, and i love i love my guests but man this one whoo it's it's amazing so you are amazing keep doing what you're doing be you uh, there's no one better than you can be so you be you for once today i am nearly speechless and i really had to take some time to process what christopher shared it's incredibly powerful, and I am hoping that I have summarized a bit of what he had to share. But again, I hope that you'll take some time and maybe even listen again to this episode, and please, please share it with anyone you know. So here are my takeaways. Number one, it is critical that medical training programs create a safe and welcoming place for medical students, residents, and fellows. The message must be, you belong here. Number two, out of hopelessness, there is hope and help. Number three, 
Medical training continues to promote the stigma of failure and a culture of perfectionism. So follows a painful outcome Christopher describes in his piece, We Burn Out, We Break, We Die. Number four, as a black man, Christopher shared a painful reality and said, There is a target on my back that follows generations of racism and dehumanization. Christopher is called to medicine, particularly psychiatry and primary care, to serve his community and to provide a place of belonging for patients of color who have been minoritized. Number five, black patients may not seek mental health because it historically has not been seen as an option. This is not noncompliance. This is exclusion. Number six, Activism is an obligation to change minds and change hearts. Number seven, a message to medical students and trainees, and really any physician. Asking for help works, therapy helps, and there is no shame in failure. Christopher quoted Michael Jordan's words, I've failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. Please find links to the Larner Project stories and to Christopher's publications in the show notes. Again, thank you to Christopher, and I hope all of you are taking good care of yourselves. If any of you are struggling with suicidality, or you know colleagues or family members who are struggling, please remember the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the Crisis Text Line. Text HOME to 741741. Take good care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.